As I was on my flight to Curitiba uh, at the very end of September, if you remember what was going on in the United States at that time, there was a hurricane uh, going through Florida. And I was wondering whether my flight would actually go. And to some extent, I have to say, I was hoping it wouldn't. Because of that storm, I was hoping perhaps it would be laid a, a day. Well, it took off. And as I went, I was riding next to a woman who, had, uh, who was working in the building industry, uh, working all over the United States, all over America. She had her PhD in biochemistry. And I don't have time to explain to you what that had to do with great building projects, but that was what she was doing. And uh, she asked me about myself, and I said, oh, you know, when I did my bachelor's degree, I did it in biology, and the, the favorite part of biology for me was microbiology, and in chemistry, it was biochemistry. And I said, so I really enjoy what you have studied. And uh, we hit it off uh, rather uh, quickly, and then she wanted to know what I was doing now, and I said, oh, I'm a pastor, and then a big question mark was on her face. How do you put that together? And so I told her, and then I shared the gospel with her. The Lord gave me a wonderful opportunity, because you have a fair amount of time when you're in the air, and uh, so I took her step by step through the gospel, and I could see her reaction the whole time, and I said, um, you know, I've said all of this, but I notice uh, you don't actually accept a number of the things I'm saying. And she said, well, I'm an atheist. And I grew up in a family of mother and father who were atheists. And so that just isn't the direction that I think. And I let her explain her view in a couple of minutes. And I said, well, I respect that. We went on and talked about other things. And then we were silent perhaps for five minutes. And then the plane was landing because it was the first leg of the journey and uh, coming down in Charlotte, North Carolina. And as it came down, of course, the plane always shakes when it moves through the air going down. And to me, I've been on so many flights, it doesn't bother me at all, and I know where I'd go if anything happened. And uh, she gently grabbed my forearm, and she said, my atheism does not go all the way through. And right now, I'm very glad that I'm riding right next to Jeff, the preacher. <laughs> and Scripture will have its effect, not only for those moments, but it'll have its effect, really, for the rest of the life of that woman until she receives Christ, which is my hope, or if she doesn't, all the way through eternity, and so that is a thought, that is a subject that is of interest, should be of interest to every single Christian that there is, sharing the gospel with other people. And I think probably a majority of the times that I have come here and I have spoken the word, it has been on that subject. In the summer of 1989, I uh, lived, and Linda and uh, our family lived in the city of Munich, 
we had a pastor and his wife come to visit us, and I uh, respected this pastor very much from Indianapolis, Indiana. And uh, he had taken a church of about 50 people, and over a period of about uh, 35 years, uh, that church grew to over 800 on a Sunday. We were... um, at the very beginning of our ministry in Germany. And so I wanted to find out from him what I could, and I thought, what an opportunity. We were driving down to one of the castles uh, made by King Ludwig in southern Germany, well, one of those places that uh, all the world marvels at. And as we drove, I thought, I have two hours just to ask him every question I want to ask So I pose this question. You've led a church, you've grown it from 50 up to over 800 now, and many people have come to Christ through your ministry. Uh, What are the important principles for doing that sort of ministry? And he answered me this way. He said, when I came to the church... I determined I wanted to have a church full of people who believed the Word of God and lived according to the Word of God. And that meant that I would base my ministry upon the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And then he stopped. And then I waited. And I thought, he's gathering his thoughts And I kept waiting. And I kept waiting until it got thoroughly embarrassing and I understood he gave me his answer. I decided I would base my ministry on the preaching and teaching of God's word. And so I changed the subject and we talked about other things in a very pleasant way all the way for that two hours. God taught me a lesson in that ride in Germany. And it is this. If God makes something simple, don't you make it complicated. And I've thought about that oftentimes. Jeff, if God makes something simple, don't you make it complicated. One of the things that's very clear in the Bible is that God wants his children to share his gospel. That's why there is a First Baptist Church, Sterling Heights. By the way, I always love, Linda, I always love coming here, and it's always too brief. Jesus said to his disciples, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Are you a disciple today? Let me ask you this. Do you go by the title Christian? Do you? Do you know that was a combination of Latin and Greek? I think I got this right. Combination of Latin and Greek. Christianos. And it meant followers of Christ, which is a definition for a disciple of Christ. You call yourself a a Christian. That's exactly what you mean, even if you didn't realize that. God wants us all 
to be sharing the gospel. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And sometimes we ask, God, how can you use me? And I want to repeat the lesson. If God makes something simple, don't you make it complicated. And I want to explain this through part of the story of Moses. So let's look in the book of Exodus, and we will begin in chapter 2, the calling of Moses. Israel, God's people, had moved to Egypt, and they had grown enormously, and they'd been made slaves by the Pharaoh. And those that came after continued to keep them in slavery and do awful things to them, including requiring them to kill their, uh, 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 their baby sons. While this was going on, God had his eye on Israel. And I want to read to you chapter 2, beginning at verse 23. And by the way, I'm reading from the New King James. I hadn't planned that for this day. And uh, thank you, Pastor Dwight. You helped me enormously. I hope I'm helping you. Now, it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage. And they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. And sometimes we wonder, why did God allow that to happen to Israel? If you read in the book of Ezekiel, there is a passage which states very clearly that they had drifted into idolatry. That's why God allowed that. And if you read carefully in the book of Numbers, you can read about what sort of idolatry they were still practicing while they were in the wilderness and God said, don't do this anymore. Moses taught them, don't do this anymore. And when you read the book of Amos, you read that they were still carrying around their shrines in the wilderness, shrines to other gods. That's why God had them in bondage. Let's read in verse 24, so God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. God knew what was going on with Israel. He had been quiet for centuries, but he knew what was going on with Israel. God also knew what was going on with Moses. Remember the story. He had been brought up in Pharaoh's house, so he was a prince. In Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world, he was royalty. And now he had fled for his life into the area of Midian, which most scholars take to mean also it carried over into the Sinai Peninsula. And there he was as a shepherd with his flock. And let's see what it says in the book of Exodus, chapter 3. I want to read verses 1 through 10. 
Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that, he turned aside to look. God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and if you can say them all, you get through your first year of seminary. (laughs) Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And as he listened to this, being face to face with Yahweh, and of course bowed his face so he wouldn't look. Talking with God and listening. And Moses had thought 40 years ago that he could redeem his people. And it sure didn't work. And now God is speaking to him and he said, I'm going to redeem my people. And Moses That whole time, no doubt, thought, this is great. I never thought it was going to happen. This is absolutely marvelous. Putting it in our terms, I don't know that he talked that way. This is fantastic. And that's what he was thinking until the next sentence. And the next sentence says, but Moses, oh, excuse me, and he said, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Wait a minute, Lord. Wrong guy. You surely have someone else in mind. Now, he doesn't say this, but no doubt it was in his mind. I tried this once, remember? And it flubbed. And he had had a life that had gone a completely different direction for 40 years. God had not forgotten Israel, and God had not forgotten Moses. And so he begins this discourse back and forth with God, and God answers everything that he has to say. And we follow it on through all the 
chapter 3 of Exodus, and then we come to chapter 4, where I want to read again. And then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me, or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, this is God. Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses fled from it. And then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and he caught it and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Four hundred years, no revelation. Moses had all kinds of questions in his mind and protests as well. What if they don't believe me? And God asks, what is that in your hand? Now, the Hebrew word for what he had, the rod, is mateh. And it's a simple wooden rod or staff. That's all it means. Nothing special. And God said, I want to use what you have. The Hebrews will be convinced. Now, every shepherd can use a rod or a staff. Only God can use a rod to work miracles. Moses allowed God to use his rod, and God did things that the world had never seen before. God wants to use you too. Please remember with me the lesson. If God makes it simple, don't you make it complicated. God wants to use you just as much as he wanted to use Moses. I'd like to look at another passage of Scripture, and it is Romans chapter 12, which many of you know rather well. And like myself, you can repeat it by memory. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. We could say a lot of things. No doubt your pastor has preached to you and other pastors have preached to you on this and we could spend a lot of time on it. It is worthy of a lot of time. And the verse following, worthy of a lot of time. I just want to say this. God says, present your body as a living sacrifice. If you do that, God will use you to share his gospel. What do you have in your hand? God wants to use it to spread his word. Thomas Branwell Welch 
was a Methodist preacher. I believe it's Methodist Wesleyan. He was also a dentist. He experimented with grape juice to come up with a type of juice that would not ferment. And he was successful. He did that for the congregations with which he and his church were associated. He had a son named Charles, who was also a dentist. And he wanted to be a missionary, and he had his heart set on going to Africa. And doctors examined him and his wife And the doctor said to them, if you go to Africa, your wife will not survive. We recommend you don't go. And they were crushed because that was the desire of their hearts. So he took that as a message from God or a leading from God And he went on with his work. But he took his father's recipe for non-fermenting grape juice and patented it. And then he marketed it. And you and I know it today as Welch's grape juice, right? We all know what that is. That's the story. But the other part of that story is that Charles Welch used the income to funnel millions of dollars to missionaries worldwide. No, Charles Welch, I do not want you in Africa. I want you in the United States. I want you to keep on being a dentist. I want you to keep doing these things with grape juice that you've been doing before, and I want you to help send thousands of missionaries all over the world. What is that in your hand? God said it to Moses, and God says to you. And if God makes things simple, don't you make them complicated? So if you think, God can't use me, We've already given some examples. Are you ready for God to use your abilities? To use your money? To use your property? To use your connections? And anything else that we might name? Your education for the spread of the gospel. In Matthew 25, we read the parable of the talents, the servants and the talents, and each one was given a different amount. And the Lord was expecting a return on that, at the very least, interest. And that's what God expects of us as well. He's given us talents. He expects a return on that. He wants us to invest these for Him. And a part of that investment is spreading the gospel. A man named Walter Mauerhofer. Let me say it like a good German. Walter Mauerhofer. He's actually from Switzerland. He learned horticulture. 
He went to the territory of Salzburg, moved there with his family, and he was an expert in growing things. He went from house to house with samples of seeds, and he would give them to, in the farming community. He would give these out to people, not just farmers, but primarily to farmers. And uh, as he gave them out, he would share the gospel. And then he would come back a year later and say, how did they do? And inevitably, it was good. And they wanted to know where they could get more. And so he had even more opportunity to talk with them about the Word of God and about how to be saved, and he would even get to sit down with them and uh, share the gospel, open the Bible with them. This is a totally Catholic area. People got saved. All over what they call Salzburger Land, the province of Salzburg, all over that area. He led people to Christ. Today, there are churches Bible-believing churches all over that area. What is that in your hand? Maybe you think, my talents are too small. I'd like to ask you to turn with me to one more passage. And that is in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12. Paul is talking about giving. But this goes beyond giving. God used it for Linda and me as we had said yes and we're going for one year right after we got married. That was the first time we went to Germany. We went there for one year. And we were concerned. Can we even do this? We're being asked to do to go to Germany and be involved in mission work. Can we even do this? My only thought was we're going to fail. And he gave her this verse and she gave it to me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12. For there, if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. Get it? Doesn't matter if your talents are many or few. If you're well known for what you can do or unknown in spite of what you do. God says to you, just like he said to Moses, what is that in your hand? Now I'd like to finish with a homely illustration. In the year 2000, I tore a ligament, <clears throat> and it was right before I had to fly. It was like a week and a half before I had to fly. And uh, so I came back alone, and Linda and the two children who were there still in Germany followed about six weeks later. And um, I was in pain. 
got to the airport in Frankfurt and they drove me around in one of those cars. Anytime I hear one of those cars, I'm in, a, in, a, in an airport and I hear this beep beep, okay? Now maybe it irritates you. It does not irritate me. I was on one of those things <laughs> and I'm so deeply thankful. And they drove me all the way to the gate and um, I had hoped as I talked with the airline I called them up, told them what my situation was, and they said, you know, essentially, God bless you. I got on the plane, hobbling on crutches and an air cast. And the flight attendants, three of them were standing together in that very large airplane, ten seats across, two aisles. They looked at me, and they looked at my ticket, and they shook their heads, and they said, this will never do. We're going to find something else for you. And they found me a place that uh, was on one of the side exit aisles. We, I sat in the middle. I had lots of leg space in front of me. Those of you who fly, I didn't have to pay a penny for that. Wasn't that nice? And I sat there, and we took off, about 45 minutes later, I got talking to the man right next to me. And uh, as we talked, he was talking about his family and he was talking about child rearing. And I thought, this guy must be a Christian. So I started to ask him about his faith. He said, well, they don't have a faith, really. I said, where'd you get your ideas? for childbearing, because they sound very good. He said, well, do you remember when in San Diego there was the first time that there was a mass shooting and it was at McDonald's? I said, yes. He said, one of my very good friends died in that shooting. And my children were very little at that point, but I determined at that point, this is serious business. I'm going to make sure that my children grow up right. So we talked more about faith after that, and he told me his father was an atheist and his mother was a Buddhist. So he didn't really have a connection with any faith. But he said, my, my wife is uh, a Catholic. But he said, we don't, she doesn't practice, we don't go. But I'm interested. And for the next three hours, we talked about the Word of God. We talked about Christ. We talked about how to be saved. He had many questions, almost no protest, just questions, and he wanted me to tell him. And so I answered before we were finished. He was asking me, what version of the Bible should I buy? Because I told him he needed to get reading the Bible every day. He asked me, what kind of church should I be looking for? And when I get back home, what should I be telling my wife about my faith? We hadn't prayed together, but it was obvious he had come to faith in Christ while we were talking together. We might word it this way. God spoke to Jeff Brown, and he said, Jeff, what is that in your hand? 
And my answer was, pair of crutches. And God said, I want to use it. Couldn't imagine how he would use that. God said, I want to use it. Pair of crutches. Every one of you here today has something a whole lot better than that. But if God could use my two crutches to lead a man to Christ, he can use whatever you got. God is saying, what is that in your hand? Present your body a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do that. And watch the great things that God does. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel. That's why we are saved. And I pray that if there's one here that does not know you, not really know you in his heart or her heart, that she would say today, I want to know Christ. I want to hear about this one. I want to believe on this one who died in my place to take away my sins. And Father, Linda and I are so deeply thankful for the faithful support and prayers of this church for so many, many years. We pray your abundant blessing upon them, not only us, but many other missionaries. And Father, we ask, I ask for myself, use us. We'll present what we have. Use it how you want to. In Jesus' name, amen.